Paul Moore has been a serial entrepreneur for almost three decades. He is the author of three real estate investing books, and he has been the finalist for the Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year twice. He has been a guest on over 200 podcasts and is the host of a wealth-building podcast called How to Lose Your Money. He's going to tell us how he went from $1.5 million in the bank to $2.5 million in debt over a decade and then back to debt-free in 13 months during the Great Recession. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, my name is Kirby Ingalls, and you're listening to the True Success Podcast. My goal is to help you find true success by helping you live a rich and satisfying life a life of happiness and meaning in becoming a pillar of your community. This podcast is designed to inspire you to write a new narrative, revolutionize the way we live, and create a ripple effect that resonates with future generations. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Kirby Ingalls, and I am here with Paul Moore. And Paul Moore is the founder and uh, uh, managing partner at Wells Capital. Uh, Paul, please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so um, I am uh, Paul Moore, and uh, we... I, I made a lot of mistakes in my life and I've got a podcast called How to Lose Money to Prove It. And so um, I wondering why would you even have a guy on who would be would host a podcast called How to Lose Money? Well, we'll get back to that. Anyway, yeah, so I got an engineering degree in the 80s, which was my first big mistake. Then I got an MBA, which is my second uh, which is not a mistake, actually. And then I, I went to Ford Motor Company for five years. I really liked Ford. I had nothing against them, but I always felt that I was an entrepreneur. I always felt like I was supposed to be doing something different. I felt like a little bit of a square peg in a round hole there. And so we started my own company with a partner. We did that for five years. We sold it. We were very blessed to be able to sell it to a publicly traded company for a multiple that was obscene. And I actually went to the Blue Ridge Mountains at age 34 with my family, had two kids at the time, turned into four kids, and we started an international student ministry. And then I got bored. And I was like 34, high energy entrepreneur. And so we started flipping houses for fun. And that turned into a long real estate career that included flipping houses, being on HGTV once. Uh, doing a real estate brokerage business, flipping waterfront lots, doing rent to own houses, um, did a small subdivision. And I was always trying to figure out during those years, how do I get involved in commercial real estate? I didn't know how Kirby. And I uh, stumbled into it through the Bakken, North Dakota oil rush. We were actually investing in oil and gas up there and found out there was no place to stay. My friend in his little jet had to fly back and forth from Colorado. He couldn't even find a hotel room in that whole quarter of the state. And so what we did is we decided to build some multifamily properties there. And we had two successful multifamily developments. And then we did a Hyatt hotel, which was a disaster. And I decided to get back in and stay in commercial real estate, but I jumped into multifamily, 
And then later we uh, migrated into self-storage and mobile home parks. And now we've created Wellings Capital to uh, basically allow investors to join us in the deals we're working on. We've got 76 deals in our fund right now and investors are enjoying cash flow and appreciation, hopefully from that. Uh, and so that's what I do. That's my whole life story in a nutshell. <laughs> no, thank you for that. I appreciate that. It sounds like you've had an impactful life already. And that's kind of why this show actually exists is how do we go from purpose to impact? Uh, I like, you know, I brought you really on to kind of talk about this real estate investing because I don't know as much about it as is probably the next person. And so I've been curious about it. Um, and I've been to some Robert Kioski seminars and I've been, talked to a few other people uh, or as I began to go from the troops mm -hmm. to civilian transition and some people came in uh, American dream you and talked about real estate investing as an option after the military and some other things. And it always seemed like a viable option, but I never really knew much about it. And so from, you know, knowing nothing, I think that's kind of where I'm coming from this perspective because recently I had on a man, uh, named Richard Friesen, and he is about the psychology of money, but he spoke more or less from the trading aspect. So trading on wall street, and now you're in a little bit different investing arena, which there's multiple ways you can invest your money and use it as a tool to build generational wealth. And I think that's one of the things that attracted me the most is mm -hmm. I always talk about the generational wealth aspect, um, not so much for the money aspect, but, you know, handing down generational wealth as far as, you know, family history, purpose, why, things like that. And I know you have a big why. We'll get to that pretty soon. But what was it about? the the real estate investing that attracted you the most why go that route after having a storied career already yeah so uh, honestly it was to help a friend originally he my had a, i had a friend who had a lot of history and maintenance he knew how to fix up houses but he didn't have a job and so i said well why don't we go down the courthouse steps and see if we can get a house and we bought a house for thirty four thousand dollars on the courthouse steps that we sold weeks later literally weeks later for 65 and we only had a, a fresh coat of paint in a few of the rooms that was it and so we thought wow we could do this this would be fun i mean the adventure alone for me was fun i was a little bit of a well a lot of a risk taker at the time 25 but, you know, 20 something years later, I'm not the risk taker I was then. I've learned a lot through a lot of mistakes. But that's what originally drew me. But what drew me to commercial real estate is this. Okay, so everybody on your, in your audience knows inherently how residential real estate works. You buy low, you fix up, and you sell for higher. Or you buy at any price within reason, and then you rent and you make a profit on the rental versus, you know, your mortgage payment. That's pretty obvious. Commercial real estate's entirely different. In fact, the reason I think, Kirby, that the Forbes 400, wealthiest people in the world, almost all invest in commercial real estate, is because of the value formula. Now, the value formula in commercial real estate is similar to other asset types. It's like, it's sort of like the PE ratio in stocks. So here's what it is. The value of the real estate is the income divided by the uh, cap rate. The cap rate is the capitalization rate. And that is the income level, the percentage, the return on investment that an investor would expect for that asset 
at that time in that location in that condition. Okay. And so if I expect to get a 7% return on investment, if I buy a million dollar mobile home park, I'm going to expect it's going to throw off 70,000 in net operating income a year. That's a 7% cap rate. Now, if I can raise the income on that by, let's say, from 70,000 up to, let's say, 100,000, well, that's 30,000 more income that divide the 30,000 by the cap rate or 7% in this time, in this case. Okay. And that will give me the increased value of the property, but it's better than that because when we use leverage, let's say safe leverage, 50% loan. Well, now it doubles the effect of the increased income. But if I have 75% leverage and I'm not recommending that, but I'm saying, if you do, you can quadruple the impact of a dollar of income. And so this is very, very powerful because if I can go into a mobile home park and let's say I can make one change, let's say I just pass the utilities back to the tenants. And so we recently got a 311 space mobile home park in our portfolio, pass the utilities back to the tenants, which was long, long overdue. I mean, almost everybody around them was that way. So these people couldn't really complain. Well, that $50 a month that the tenants were all going to be paying in water and sewer now and trash pickup, that $50 off of our books meant that the income went up by, I think it was $140,000. Okay, so that's uh, like $12,000 a month. That sounds pretty good, but $140,000. And now the cap rate was actually compressed because we made it into a professionally run park. So instead of a 7.5% cap rate, it was actually 5.8%. That increased the value of the property $2.4 million. That's just an example. That wow. was a simple thing to pass the utilities back to the tenants. Raising the rent 10% meant that the value of the park went up 10% as well. But with leverage, the value of the equity went up 20% because of 50% debt. So I know I'm getting into a lot of math here. The point is the math makes commercial real estate very powerful. I would never go back to residential now that I know this. No, I appreciate that explanation. I think that's actually uh, pretty powerful the way you've, you've explained that. And actually probably has some people, you know, kind of considering it now because of how you presented it. For, for me, you know, I, I had no idea. I thought it was just something you're probably just skimming off the top and you're, you're, yeah. you're focusing on multi-unit homes. And that's, you know, when, when you talk about multifamily, I know that there's probably a difference between that. Um, I know when I read your book, uh, you talked a little bit about there's a difference between apartments and multi-unit. Can you explain the difference and what people should be getting involved in as far as that goes? I think the difference I was saying was, you know, a lot of people think about when they're buying multifamily, they're buying a duplex. Mm -hmm. So they might even house hack, they might live in one side and rent the other and let the other side pay almost all of their mortgage. That's a great strategy. It uses a residential loan and it's valued a duplex, threeplex or fourplex are all valued based on residential comps, the comps of the neighborhood. What I was saying in the book is, though, if you can get commercial multifamily, that's like five units and above, it's based on this formula. And so the appraisal value can be, you, you can basically force 
depreciation. And I just told you how you can, you know, pass the utilities back to the tenant. With apartments, you might fill 10 vacant apartments and that extra 10 times, let's say a thousand a month, that's 10,000 a month, 120,000 a year. That adds the 120,000 a year can add about 2 million to the value of those apartments. With a self-storage facility, you can add U-Haul. You can literally go in and buy a storage facility for a million dollars, add U-Haul, get it up to speed, and then sell the storage facility with no other changes Instead of for a million, you might be able to sell it for 1.6 million. That's a 60% profit, mm -hmm. but it's better than that because with leverage, that might more than double the cash you had in. If you can double your cash in a year just by signing a contract with U-Haul and getting it up and running, that's pretty cool. Those are some things you can do with commercial multifamily or commercial other stuff that you can't do with residential. It's very, very powerful. You know, I appreciate that. One of the things I was curious about was there has to be a certain level that you have to get to. And when you're working with multifamily, even if it was yeah. apartments and things like that, but when you do work with multifamily, uh, there has to be an occupancy rate, right? In order to kind of break even or to profit. So, you know, when it, when it, when it comes down to, you know, the, the debt that you've borrowed and the operational costs, what yeah. is the goal that everybody should be shooting for in order to be able to actually start to bring in a profit and, and you know, that investment begin to pay off? How yeah, does that you know, work? It really depends what you pay for it, you know, and that's, this is where like class C, let's say a big, somebody told me about a 400 unit, vacant apartment complex in Dallas. And we went to see it and we were pretty excited. The risk on that is enormous because not only would we have had to spend like 10,000 per unit to fix it up, we would have had to spend years re-tenanting that apartment complex. And so in theory, if I spent 25 million on that apartment complex, I should expect to be able to sell it for 40 million. I mean, triple my equity, you know, a huge increase in, because of all the risk. And then in a low risk place, it might be like, let's say 100 units that are all full, they're all paying, let's say a senior community where generally, you know, they're just super stable tenants, they hardly ever move out, then your risk is much lower. Therefore, your cap rate or your return rate is also much lower. And that means basically means you, you might be happy with a 4% return on investment. Well, honestly, between you and me and your audience, 4% doesn't keep up with inflation these days. So mm -hmm. I don't like either one of those deals. I like the middle of the road deal, the kind where there's stable tenants paying well, but there's also some increased a reason, you know, ability to increase the margin through value adds, like passing the utilities back, like adding U-Haul, like raising the rents when they're 30% below market and you can raise rents 10% a year for three years to catch up to the market rents. That's the kind of thing I like. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, we've been talking about investing in real estate up to this point. And, you know, there's some folks that are probably curious or actually interested in doing this now at this point, just based off of what we've already kind of talked about, because we've talked about the rates of return and, you know, how it can be a very powerful investment. For somebody that has never been involved in this whatsoever, has, has no experience whatsoever, 
how do they even get started? So maybe it's a manager or a director or a VP in corporate America, and, and maybe they want to create some kind of generational wealth for their family, or maybe they're thinking about, you know what, I'm tired of the grind and I'm tired, you know, I, I want to do something a little bit yeah. different to create some wealth so I can spend more time with my family, just mm-hmm. to kind of shift perspectives, kind of like you did. You, I think it was about, you said 33, 34 years old, you kind of yeah. began to make that shift. How can someone else kind of get started into something like this? Yeah, yeah. Some people aren't going to like my answer, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people like that, like the dentist in Seattle who was happily telling me about the 20 house portfolio he was building on the side. And then he sighed and he said, well, actually, it's pretty hard because I I asked him how it was going. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, it's going to replace my income and all this at first. And then he said, yeah, it's hard. I'm actually on the phone with painters between dental appointments. And I'm actually spending the evenings and weekends screening tenants and trying to get a contractor out to fix the basement or whatever. And And he's like, you know, it's actually a lot harder than I thought. I'm exhausted. And he said, and I'm only on the third house. And I said, dude, There's an easier way. The problem with doing real estate on the side is you're competing with people who are doing it professionally. It's sort of like investing in Wall Street and some of these high risk day trading things. Imagine having a 10 hour a day demanding job or more and in your spare time time trying to beat the professionals on Wall Street. It's not gonna happen on average. Sure, it can happen. And sure, we saw this week on Wall Street, a lot of people who weren't professional investors beat the pros uh, in the Reddit, you know, the GameStop yeah. thing. But that's the exception, that's not the norm. Same with real estate. My advice is if you've got a great corporate career, invest passively. Go to the local real estate meetup, you know, in Kansas City or wherever you are and link up with some people you trust, loan them money, let them do the hard work, and then you just get the checks. Common rate of return for people loaning money to house flippers right now is minimum 12%. And if you actually charge like a a fee going in like points, you can sometimes make up to 16, 18% a year on your money. My friend Chad Corbett does it year in, year out. My friend Barry in Colorado does it year in and year out. And I know two real estate investors, including my son, who pay those rates to get those, you know, that cash to use to flip. And it works. And so I would definitely be a passive investor. My company exists because we believe real estate investing doesn't have to be so hard. I like to say to my investors, why are you working harder than you need to to make less than you could. I would invest passively and I do it myself. I know how to do all this stuff. I invest passively. Mm-hmm. I invest in my own fund. Yeah, you talk about passive investing. I remember reading about that in your book. Uh, one of the things that you, when you were talking about passively investing is there's a recipe for success when you do invest. Uh, what are the key components of that recipe? Yeah, so it, for multifamily, uh, the recipe for success would be to uh, get a great property manager. Uh, Either you become or you be a great asset manager. Buy a commercial level value add multifamily property. Uh, Do the strategy, execute the strategy as the asset manager working in tandem with your property manager. Do the execute the strategy to bring up the value 
use safe leverage. These are all pieces of the recipe using safe leverage and hopefully other people's equity and debt and you make a profit for everybody. The bank wins, the investors win, the tenants win, everybody wins using this type of scenario. No, thank you. Uh, I know, you know, for those that do want to get involved in this, uh, and maybe there's some folks out there that are willing to finance. I know you talked about a particular loan that I wasn't familiar with called a recourse loan. Can you explain that and how that works and why you recommended that particular loan and the benefits yeah. of that? Yeah. So a recourse loan means that when you buy, let's say a 10 unit apartment or a 50 unit mobile home park, they can actually come after everything. And so when my friend built his Hyatt hotel, he had a recourse loan and he knew he could lose his jet. He could lose his house. He could lose everything if things went south. So he actually worked for six months, almost nonstop to get a non-recourse loan. And actually, Kirby, that's what we want. We want to get to a non-recourse loan, even if we have to pay a little higher interest rate. And basically that means they can only take the property if things go south. The larger you get into commercial real estate, you know, the larger 100 unit apartments and the more experience you get, the more likely it is you'll get a non-recourse loan. And that's the goal. Thank you. You know, one of the other things that I was curious about basically was there are some metrics that we need to be considering yeah. before we even get involved. Uh, you know, you, it's got to be the right neighborhood, the right community. Um, there's some other factors as well before we even begin to borrow money and begin investing. You kind of have to know where you're going to go with this before you select property managers. Because I know one of the things that you said in the book was the uh, location of the property manager to the property is also a key aspect of, yeah. of you, who you, who you select to, to partner with or work with or invest your money into. So can you kind of talk about those metrics and, and some of the factors and why they should be important before you actually start, you know, putting your money forward? So the metrics to finding the right property manager? Well, not necessarily the manager, but the locations and some of the things that you should be looking oh, out for yeah. before you begin to push, you know, start to do that. You know, you kind of need to know like, where's this going? Uh, where am yeah. I investing? You right. know, things of that nature. So I had a whole chapter in my book about this and my mentor made me cut it out. Um, so it's a lot of information. He didn't make me, but um, I did ask him to sign off on the content of the book. Um, a lot of that information, once you get into uh, real estate a little deeper, you'll find that there's a lot of metrics that make for a good investment. And so for self storage, for example, it is you want to have a low number of self storage facilities in a three mile radius, and you want like less than eight square feet of storage per person. For apartment investing, it's quite different. You want to have factors like uh, a lot of hospitals, mm -hmm. a lot of colleges, uh, a lot of government stuff in the area that brings those three things bring a lot of stability in general. Of course, universities have had a little tough time during COVID, but generally that's been the historical formula. You also want to have positive net population migration. Mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of places like Kansas City, Dallas, Austin, Houston, Florida, 
uh, Atlanta have had tremendous, uh, Scottsdale, incredible population migration during COVID. But even outside of COVID, you want to look back over the last 10 years, where are people moving to? Because a rising tide will lift all boats. The problem is a sinking tide will sink your boat, even if you've got a great boat. You can have the best boat in the world. But if you're in a sinking market, let's say like Buffalo or Cleveland were, not now, but were historically, uh, then you might be you know, fighting an uphill battle. You also wanna have a place with, that has a diverse economy. Like you don't wanna be all dependent on oil and gas like some places in West Texas were in the past. Or you don't wanna be all auto industry like you know, Detroit in the past. Uh, or like, um, you know, there's all kinds of places that were all completely hinging on one, uh, you know, economic, what one industry. You also want to have, like I said, low unemployment, a diverse number of people uh, working there. Of course, you know, COVID has made things weird with unemployment because lots of people employed in the Silicon Valley are actually living all over the country now. And so that's just thrown a kind of a funny wrench into the metrics. If you want to learn more, you can go to the U.S. Census Bureau at census.gov, I think it's called. And then the, a real good one is Texas A&M Real Estate Resource Center. They have tons of metrics about all kinds of different cities and all kinds of different information that you can use to help you find your perfect city to invest in. No, I appreciate the uh, the resources there. And, and I would have never thought of the one in Texas. So uh, I had no idea. Uh, and I loved what you said there, that a rising tide raises all boats. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a, a perfect uh, description of, of what we should be looking for. Um, now, there's some mechanics of multi uh, family investing. Can you talk about those mechanics? I think it was a uh, CAPT maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we thought it was CATP, but that is kind of gross. So you can <laughs> what that is by saying that out loud, but cap T. So there are four pillars of profit in any commercial real estate investment, whether it's multifamily mm -hmm. or another one. And the first one is C that's cash flow. That's the cash flow from the property. And you want to make sure your cash flow is something that you really want, like 7%, 8%, 10% even better. And the higher the number of cash flow, the higher margin of safety built in. So I, I like that as well. A in the cap T formula is appreciation. Not only do we want cash flow, we want a growing investment. Class C properties or properties in the lowering tide environments, they often have a low A, a low appreciation. You want that. You, you want to be in the opposite. You wanna be in a high appreciation market. Places like Scottsdale right now, Phoenix, where people are pouring in from LA uh, and people who are paying 3000 a month for a one bedroom apartment can now get a three bedroom apartment for maybe 1200 a month. And so those, real estate properties in places like that are skyrocketing in value places like i'm trying to remember the town outside of new york they had like 30 or 50 percent appreciation just since covid because people want out of the city and they want to they can afford they have millions and millions in the bank and they can afford a house for cash and so they're just doing bidding wars on these houses buffalo is on the increase um rochester new york 
places like that. They're, they're having incredible appreciation right now. Now that's just right now. It doesn't mean it'll always be that way. A third uh, element of the cap T formula is P for principal pay down. Now you may not think that's a profit at all, but it is part of the profit because if you're paying down principal, eventually that mortgage company is going to hand you that back when you refinance. And so that's part of the profit. It should have been in the cash flow number, but because you have debt, you're handing it to the mortgage company for a while to pay down that principal. But when you get that back at refinance or sale, that's part of the profit and there's no tax on that, which is kind of nice. Speaking of taxes, the T in cap T is taxes. Mm -hmm. Tax savings in real estate deserves a whole show because there's so many tax saving opportunities. It is almost unbelievable how little commercial real estate investors, especially those who do it professionally, pay in taxes. That's why people like Donald Trump have a $750 bill on their tax. Uh, you know, they pay $750 or whatever a year in taxes when they make millions of dollars. It's because of depreciation and all kinds of wonderful things baked into the tax code. They've been there for decades. They're better than ever right now. Yeah, I think the last part was probably the part that a lot of folks uh, probably tuned into because we all hate paying taxes. And so we're all looking for a sill or a way out of that, um, even yeah. if it is investing and making a profit, you know, and yeah. but also kind of finding a way to, to and that may be a reason why some people are kind of curious and interested in in real estate property. I know that I have always been told that that was a tax friendly investment. Um and I like, though, you know, speaking about Buffalo and Rochester, New York, I lived in upstate New York for, for quite a while. And while those cities seemed kind of um, declining when I lived up there, I've noticed that there is an uptick in, in uh, population in places yeah. like Detroit and Buffalo and Rochester because of community initiatives and, you know, making it uh, a great uh, place to live now. Um, and yeah. obviously Buffalo gets a lot of attention because of their success in professional sports now. So yeah, right. Really kind of uh, showcasing that as a family friendly um, hometown style, you know, with all the amenities. So uh, right. I think that's a great opportunity up there. If you, you like the, the four feet of snow. <laughs> right. Yeah. We all know about that. Yeah. Too. So I want to kind of go back a little bit, um, you know, back to your introduction because you kind of, you, you, you have this, uh, story about you going from 2 million in the bank to um, 2.5 million in debt and then coming back a decade later and you you know during the recession and you basically said you know within 13 months you gave your way out of debt can you talk a little bit about that and um what what that that statement means yeah so uh, i made a lot of money when i sold my company like i said earlier and um i thought that in addition to running this nonprofit, I was an investor. And you know what, Kirby? I wasn't an investor. I was a speculator. And I didn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. Like basically true wealth, let's back up. True wealth is assets, having assets that throw off income. Well, I was buying assets that I was gambling on appreciating. And that's a difference. And so I lost a lot of money. And I made a lot of money as well. You can do both with speculating, but on the average, the best, wealthiest investors in the world stay away from speculating, except with a small percentage of their portfolio. Now, so I was speculating 
and I was buying waterfront lots and I was doing all kinds of other waterfront properties, house flips, small subdivision and all this. And I ended up two and a half million dollars in debt going into the great recession exactly 10 years after I sold my company, I had two and a half million in debt. And I have this morning practice of journaling and meditation. And one morning I was sitting in my chair and I got this really strong impression. I was thinking, what am I going to do? Oh, I forgot to tell you about that time. My partner quit and he signed all the debt over to me and he signed the assets over to me as well. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I said, oh no. So we're still good friends today, but um, he left me with all that debt. And I totally understand because he couldn't make half the payments anymore. He had no way of doing it. And so anyway, so I was sitting meditating, wondering, and I had this really strong impression, what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s. And he actually went to England and became a quote, saint. He actually became a pastor, a missionary, and he was distressed, Kirby, because he looked around and saw all the men not going to church, mm -hmm. all the men who were just too busy with work, working two jobs, long hours. And they said, you don't know what it's like. You just make a living from the church. You don't know what it's like. So he, he, he renounced his salary. He said, I'm not taking a penny. And he said, I'm just going to live on faith. And he said, I'm going to prove that God will take care of you no matter what. And he started doing radical stuff. Like he started housing orphans, not just one or two or 10 or 20. He started housing hundreds and hundreds of orphans up to a thousand or 2000 at a time. He did it all be without ever taking a, an income without ever asking for a dollar. He never told the public ever in like 70 some years of doing this, that he had any need of money. It all just came in. And I said, that's kind of cool. Well, that morning at church, our pastor talked about George Miller, and he never had mentioned him before, to my knowledge. And so I said, I'm on to something. So the question is, what would George Mueller do? And I believed that George Mueller would start giving his way out of debt. Now, that's a weird thought. And so a couple of friends met me at Hardy's restaurant. Uh, that's Carl's Jr. for you on the West Coast. <laughs> and uh, a few days later, and they said, how are you going to get out of this? Are you going to declare bankruptcy? I said, no, I'm going to give my way out of debt. And they said, uh, excuse me. And I told my family the same thing. Anyway, bottom line is January 2008, we had no idea we were about to plunge down this hole called the great financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And we started giving a set amount every week that was very painful. And um, we gave it to our, you know, local church, we gave it to organizations that we cared about. And we started saying, look, we're going to trust that this is all going to work out. And three or four weeks later, I met a guy who gave me a light bulb idea to subdivide five waterfront acres into smaller parcels that was not legal. Okay, I mean, it was like going around the law. I went and presented it just two days later to the county planning and zoning with this hand drawing mm -hmm. of how I could subdivide this. And they said, we've been doing this for decades. The lady said, I've been doing this job for decades. No one has ever come up with such an outlandish idea for how to subdivide land. But then she laughed and said, you're right. You found a way around the code and I, you can do this. 
And so we started down that path. And 13 months later, through a lot of other sweat, a lot of effort, a lot of meetings with attorneys, a lot of hiring surveyors, everything, we were 100% debt free. We even paid off our house. That's a great story. And I think that, you know, when you talk about giving your debt away, uh, there's, there's something that you've done. You've started a company uh, that is uh, designed or, or was for helping victims of human trafficking and going in and rescuing them, you know, which is very near and dear to my heart because when I was in DC, I spent some time uh, working and doing, you know, seminars and, and, and things like that and going to this training. Um, I've known about this this, this thing that uh, plagues our society for a long time. And uh, I, I, it's just one of those things that I see that really goes by the wayside or by the radar yeah. of most people. And it's happening in almost every, uh, well, probably is every major city, but even in our local communities, we don't even really know it. Uh, yeah. And it's really prevalent. Uh, and it's the modern day slavery of our time. So can you talk a little bit more about how that worked and why you got involved in that and why that was so important. Yeah. You know, um, we, we, our company, so I have a nonprofit organization that gives toward that. And, uh, my company, our desire as a company is to give toward that, um, Wellings capital. I mean, we don't have a set amount. We just give all that we can to fighting human trafficking and rescuing its victims. Part of the reason is this five years ago, I was introduced to this idea about human trafficking and I didn't know this, but check this out. If you took the record profits, not the average, the record profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks rolled those together, record profits, doubled that number, that's the approximate revenue generated by human trafficking every year. And you know what? I like to believe if I would have been alive in the 1800s, I'd have been fighting slavery or an adult in the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. It is slavery and it's happening right under our noses. And we are responsible as human beings to stop this great evil. And I'm sorry to say Recently, it's been going the other direction. It's actually been getting worse rather than better. And we've got to do whatever we can to make this known and to rescue and help as many people as we can. There are two organizations I really support. One was started in Grandview, Missouri, near you. And mm -hmm. the other one was started just a few miles from Grandview. And uh, I've visited both multiple times. And I actually feel very strongly that people need to get involved. They need to at least give and they need to, you know, do whatever they can to fight this great slavery. It's not right under our noses like it was in America and England in the 1800s when William Wilberforce took this on. Right. But uh, it is happening nevertheless. And some of the people you'll see at the mall during the holidays, some of those people working in those kiosks were trafficked and you don't know that. And you couldn't even find out if you asked them because they're too terrified to tell you, but it's happening under our noses. It's quite serious. And sadly, since we began this podcast, uh, over a hundred people have been uh, kidnapped into slavery and it's happening 24 seven. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a tragedy. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of really important people. I uh, actually written a little bit about Wilbur Wilberforce. Uh, and 
I found him a very interesting person and he was pursuing something before he was even socially accepted. Right. And he went after the giants yes. uh, in the harbors that were banking off of slavery yep. and yep. passed some, some government legislation, which actually crippled their financial yes. endeavors and actually stopped the slave trade in, in yes. Europe. Uh, William and- Wilberforce is probably one of the very, very most important people. I'm talking top 10. I think this was what, 100 years history. before America even decided yeah. that they yeah, wanted he to went after it in. Yeah. He went after it in 1890s, 1880s or 90s, right after, uh, I'm sorry, 1780s yeah. or 90s, right after America. But when George Washington was president, he was going after this. And he succeeded after 30 years of fighting for this mm-hmm. in the early 1800s. And he actually helped kick off America's abolitionist movement as well. One of the most important people in history and actually what he accomplished, we're running out of time here, but what he accomplished was so much greater than just that. He accomplished something else in his lifetime that was harder than stopping slavery. And if you want to learn more about William Wilberforce, check out his biography, uh, Eric Metaxas, M-E-T. A-X-A-S, Eric Metaxas wrote a biography on Wilberforce. I highly recommend it. There's also the movie Amazing Grace that came out in 2008 or so about Wilberforce. Yeah, and that's a piece of it too. I remember that, you know, from, from the writing. I'm glad you mentioned Amazing Grace because he was the, uh, he actually uh, was uh, tied to that captain that uh, for that ship that wrote the, yeah. the lyrics for Amazing Grace. Yes, that's um, right. So, you know, I've got a couple questions for you before we end it. Uh, what is your definition of true success? So financially, my definition of success is creating wealth. Mm-hmm. And that would be wealth is as- having assets that produce income. But as everybody knows, true success is not having wealth. It's actually, in my mind, it's doing what we were put on the planet to do. And that always always has to involve loving other people, loving uh, uh, somebody who's different from you, loving somebody who's hurting, loving somebody who loves you back and those who don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even loving people who hate us is a very, very high calling. And so I think that that has got to be part of our big why. And it's hard Try to think of the last person that criticized you at the office or backbit you or even got you fired from your job or divorced you or hurt you and said something that you'll never forget, whether it was a parent, a spouse, whoever. Um, It's very hard to love them, but that's our calling on this earth. And it's going to make the earth a better place if we can learn to do that. Thank you for that. I think that's more powerful than the... uh the multifamily investing information that you gave us earlier. Last but not least, I, I know you've already created such a tremendous impact. And, and, you know, I feel guilty by asking you this question because you've already done so much it be time for you just to kick back and relax, you know, but uh, if you were to cast one stone into the water and create a ripple effect that just resonated you know, with communities or future generations or whatever that might be, what is that stone going to be that's going to, have that impact you know that's really great question i don't have i have two different answers one's quite personal to me i oh no i have three answers now one two of them are quite personal but one would be just letting people know about this great great evil 
called human trafficking. That's the one. I'll, I'll share two of them. Another one is I really, really want to positively impact my wife and four kids. And if I can send four kids into the world who are healthy and who are vibrant and who are loving other people, then that's four times multiplying my personal effort. And so those would be two things I really want to do. Hey, Paul, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. You've added a ton of value to us. And so, uh, and it's resonated with me and I'm going to go back and edit this and listen to this probably four or five times. Cause I know there's that much value in that. And wow. so I'm going to pick some nuggets out of there, uh, time to time again. So uh, again, thank you. I love the conversation we've had prior to this and, and now, and again, if there's anything you need, please let us know. I feel like I've made a new friend. Thanks Kirby. This has been great. <laughs> Now it's up to you to put all this information into action. Please check out the links in the show notes and support us by smashing that like button. Leave a comment or review on whatever platform you might be listening to. Now go out and share this story forward. My name is Kirby Ingalls and I appreciate you listening. Honor your service to others and love the impact you are creating. I'll see you next time. Oh,